Welcome to Voices of Experience for October 2009, where our theme this year is Imagine. I'm your host, Jared Bro. On our list of things to imagine, lessons from the bazaars of Iran, 20-year-olds who pick their speaking lane at the age of seven, and a speaker who gives away every dime every time. Get ready to open your mind, NSA. This is Voices of Experience. This month's Speaker Magazine is focusing on marketing and social media. And while many of us use Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube as a way to talk to potential clients, David Noir says he imagines the best way to use these tools is as a listening post in what he describes as relationship economics. David joins us in this month's edition of Backstage. Relationship economics is a different view, different approach, different... Um, a mindset in something that everybody understands important relationships, yet very few measure it. Very few think of it as a unique differentiator. Very few think of it as a strategic asset. So for the first time, we've come up with ideas to become more intentional in the relationships you choose to invest in. Where did the light bulb come from <laughs> for this idea? <laughs> I was, um, I think I was five years old. And my dad uh, would walk me through the bazaars of Iran on Friday afternoons when we would run our errands. And I certainly didn't get it then. But I get it now that dad got things done through relationships. That's who you know. And, and whether we needed a plumber at the house or we needed access to somebody, dad was masterful at connecting the dots between the relationships he had and the ones he needed to get things done. So over my career, between sales, marketing, consulting, I was president of a startup in New York, I spent some time at a private equity firm, consistently what I've seen, individuals, teams, and companies who set themselves apart isn't because of the products or services. It's because they've become, either consciously or subconsciously, very good at building nurturing, and never using but leveraging relationships to get things done. So fast forward, and you have tapped into uh, what some would call shiny new object syndrome, <laughs> that relationships are now taking place online in new ways through oh so many tools, whether sure. it's Twitter, Facebook, whatever is going to come down the pike next. How have you managed to leverage the shiny new objects to launch your business and catapult your business? You know, I, I wish I could take all the credit, but sometimes you just kind of stumble on things. What I do believe in is that your market is fairly intelligent if you're savvy enough to listen. So I've been speaking on relationship economics for, for several years now. And a couple of years ago, I started showing screenshots of LinkedIn. I've been on LinkedIn for six years. People don't know LinkedIn has been around that long. Right, yeah. And after my session, people were like, yeah, the relationship thing is cool, and we appreciate the fresh kind of perspective, but can you talk more about that LinkedIn thing? What is that? And, and, and you know, whereas in the, in the past several years, relationship economics has been the predominant kind of my messaging and positioning. And in this last year or two, because of the buzz from Twitter, because of the buzz from Facebook, because of all the interactivity with LinkedIn and there's just a lot of interest. So now my you know, evolution of my business has become, how can you help us build relationships online? And as you heard me speak about this topic, 
Nothing will ever replace you and I meeting in person, us shaking hands, looking at each other in the eye. What social networking can help you do is extend your reach. And what's critical that people have to understand from this recording or hopefully the NSA recording that they get access to is what I said on stage, which is your offline relationships and your online relationships have to be in line. They have to be consistent. They have to be congruent. You have to be the same person I meet in person as I do read your LinkedIn or Facebook profile. You used the phrase just now, savvy enough to listen. Uh, I've, I've heard speakers say the good Lord gave you two ears, one mouth, use them in that proportion. Tell me about what you're thinking when you say savvy enough to listen. Unfortunately, a lot of people build products, services, some based on research, some based on what they think is cool. They take it to the market and they keep proposing, pitching, talking about, let me tell you about my methodology, my approach, my workshop, my whatever. Very few think about the client's condition as that input and how I can help them improve that condition. You cannot prescribe without diagnosing. And that's the other thing I get excited about social networks is they're a phenomenal opportunity to listen and engage. You want better answers? Ask better questions. So by listening, I can now have a litmus test of is this the right approach? Is this the right value proposition? Is this the right solution to that which my current or prospective clients are struggling with? Let me, at the risk of going off subject, but still in your area, you said ask the right questions. Mm. Shiny new Twitter, my love-hate relationship with that <laughs> horrible woman. Did they ask the wrong question? It's not that they asked the wrong question. It's, it's one of those uh, interesting ideas that becomes a viable product. We're, the jury's still out of whether it will become a, a, a lasting, profitable business. But social scientists call what Twitter's doing is being ambient aware. They came up with a box, 140 characters, to answer a very simple question. What are you doing? What they did, I don't think anybody anticipated, is now people are using that same box much more so to respond in what they're reading, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're find of value. I just read this article and I thought it'd be of interest to my community. I just met so-and-so and I think this is somebody you may want to follow or, or consider learning from. So what it's doing is by sharing small pieces about just that, what we're thinking, what we're reading, what we find of value, others get to know us better. And it gives them a more holistic view of who we are. You live in Atlanta, Georgia, but you're born in Iran, right? Mm-hmm. And during the summer of 2009, while people in Atlanta were tweeting and complaining about the <laughs> length of the lines mm. for latte, your colleagues back in your home country are tweeting about where to run during protests following an election. Yeah. Your thoughts? Um it's a so so uh, boy. Uh, Are we juxtaposing something here? No, that, no, no. That you see Twitter in. I saw Twitter in a whole new light. It, it, and, and it's exactly what most of the world saw. So um, countries like Iran, oppressive government-controlled entities, uh, where state-controlled media, 
where there's very little access for international correspondence, applications like Twitter, applications like Facebook become the people's voice, become an avenue. They become a channel for freedom. Um, so just to set the stage, I was actually in Turkey uh, doing some work for a client. I took my family with me. Most, A lot of my family is still back in Iran. My mom and dad were able to come to Turkey and spend time with us. We're glued to CNN International, BBC, and I'm following Twitter and Facebook, which is, they, they read it in Farsi, and my mother is reading from my dad updates on what's happening. It is real-time access to what's happening on the ground that you couldn't get any other way. So without me bringing it too far away, let me bring it back. What's that teach us about relationships and the shiny new tools that let us maintain relationships? What does it teach a speaker? I would submit to you that as speakers, beyond our educational foundation, beyond our professional pedigree, our most valuable asset is our portfolio of relationships. This is a relationship business. Build the relationship first. And I've said this before. I actually talk about influence the conversation. You'll influence the relationship. Influence the relationship. You'll influence the outcome you're after. And the shiny new tools are phenomenal opportunities to listen. Listen louder. Listen to what your market is asking for. Listen to what the clients are asking for. And aim to not only identify need, but fill that need. And that's what's going to set you apart from the rest of the market. This month on a category of one, Joe Calloway is going to be talking to George Campbell. And Joe, quite honestly, a lot of people won't know who George Campbell is. Yeah, Jared, they won't know who George Campbell is, but I guarantee you they probably know who Joe Malarkey is. Now, what is it that attracted you to Joe Malarkey or George Campbell as a category of one? Yeah, well, it's quite literally one of a kind. There, there's, there is no other Joe Malarkey out there. And the, the magic of what George does with that character is that, in essence, he's making fun of what we do as speakers. And he, he's putting this twist on it, which is, what's the worst that a speaker could absolutely be? And he just makes it funny as, as you can possibly imagine. And the beauty of him is, if you aim low, you can't lose. It's an easy target. We've discovered that the key to delivering continuously great customer service, fewer customers. <laughs> it just makes sense, really, doesn't it? Yeah. So how do you get fewer customers? Bad customer service. Yeah. So the key to good customer service is actually bad customer service. It's the circle of life. <laughs> yeah, so how do, you, how do you consistently deliver bad customer service? Well, we have, we have an amazing new product. We, we put it on a postcard. Here's the postcard you're going to use when you're deciding how can I best deliver horrible customer service. You're going to ask yourself this question. WWTSAD. WWT, what does it stand for? What would TSA do? Yeah. <laughs> Now, now, I'm not suggesting you have the wherewithal of the federal government to make your customers' lives miserable. I'm saying we can learn from these people. <laughs> they're, they're masters. Yeah. I mean, they have one simple rule that you can apply in your business tomorrow and it'll make a significant difference. Here's the rule. Listen, this is fabulous. You may want to write this down. Protect against the one, 
by punishing the millions. Yeah. Yes. Remember, remember Richard Green? Remember him, the shoe bomber? Remember him? Because of one guy on one plane one time tried to light his loafer because of him. When we go to the airport, it's a sock hop. <laughs> Joe Malarkey is a man who is extremely excited about some very, very bad ideas. I take uh, a lot of this tried and true stuff that people have seen from motivational speakers, popular books, and I put a spin on it. Uh, his, his, uh, his slogan is choose to lose. If you shoot for the bottom, very good chance you hit it. And anything above, that's gravy. And so it's a very, it's a low expectations. That's what we're, the whole thing. And, it, and basically what you're doing is you eventually get around to a fear of failure message. And that is, you know, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And what does kill us makes for a great story. It's just we're not the ones that get to tell it. You did years as stand-up comedian. Right. What, what was the flashpoint where you thought, wait a minute, there, there's this other, whole other arena over there called corporate events? Well, I used to work really, really clean. Uh-huh. for a stand-up so I would get someone would see me in a nightclub and occasionally I would get chances to, to do corporate things because they could see where what I did would translate into a corporate area and I started doing enough of those that I realized hey this is a really this I like this audience better they're not drunk there's no waitresses going through the crowd they don't hand out tabs 10 minutes you know before the end of the show that causes a ruckus there's no smoke uh, they're more in my age group, there, there's better audiences. Mm-hmm. So I came to the conclusion I really ought to write a show specifically for this audience, and that's what I did. And did you just come right out of the shoot with Joe Malarkey? Yeah, yeah, I did. I wrote the Malarkey show, and the first one I did, I only had like 12 minutes of material. It was just almost a little tiny between act thing at a uh, at a convention. And the first one I did, I was terrified because you know you have no idea. Yeah. If it's going to work, and then a minute and a half into the thing, I thought oh, I'm going to be doing this a long time. Describe that first minute and a half. the uh, The situation was this: because Malarkey is a character, you either buy the character or you don't. And if they buy the premise, in comedy, it's called buy the premise, buy the bit. If you buy the premise, then you're going to buy the jokes and the punchlines that follow. Well, the premise was this guy is a really, really bad motivational speaker. If they will go with me, if they will allow me to do that, then we're going to have a ton of fun. And I knew immediately they were into it. And I, when I saw that, I thought, well, everything else is going to work from now on. I mean, the rest of the show is going to work. I was terrified that they were going to look at it and just go, we don't want to see this. I mean, because it's, it's a tough sell to go, you know what, I'm going to present something so bad that it's actually going to become good. I mean, that's a tough thing. But, it, but the other thing that I understood pretty quickly was the thing that, that makes the show tough in the beginning to sell to people, this bad is good, is also the thing that down the road is going to make you unique and different and fresh, and it's going to make the show very easy to sell once you establish the fact that, yeah, I can, in fact, do this. You talk about writing uh, the, the first Joe Malarkey show. Are you a writer first, or are you... Performer first. I don't know. How would you think? I don't know. I, I, in stand-up, I don't know how you separate those two. Yeah. And I, my writing process is not traditional. I mean, it's just you see something and I mull it over in my head. It's not like I sit down at, from between 8 and 10 every morning at the typewriter. You know, it's just 
you see stuff and and it works in your head and you bounce it around. It's like the the new thing I the the TSA material that I'm doing now. I mean that just came from standing in lines at TSA repeatedly and and starting yeah, to think about security. yeah the airport security stuff and starting to think about it in the process and what we all go through and and, you, and that bounces around in my brain for a while and then it comes out as a, a, a bit. Usually the beginning of funny is finding the things that annoy you. The things on your radar screen that, well, that's, I hate that. And this is, you know, the things that just get under your skin is usually the beginning of comedy, which is exactly the TSA bit that I do now. It's just that process that you're just going, really? You're going to make me do that? Really? And it's understanding that when you're getting, when you have that feeling that, boy, this annoys me, there's a very good chance it annoys a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like, it's just that that blip on your screen. So you have to take a step back and say, well, what about this? You know, do I find annoying? What le- you know, if you're a business speaker, what lessons can I extrapolate from this experience? And and you're looking for that universal, that thing that that everybody is going to nod their head and go, "Boy, that's me. That's that's exactly the way I feel when I'm going through that." So I think it's uh, that part of the process is probably applicable to almost everybody. Let's stay with that part of the process. That's, you and I worked a job together recently. And you got up on stage and did pretty much a whole show of, of brand new material. Yes. How comfortable is that? Oh, that's the worst. Uh, and this is the, the second time I'd done that material. And, and they under, understand this. The first time I did that material, it was, oh, boy, I hate to say this. It was maybe the worst show I've ever had. Yeah. Maybe. I hate to rank them. Uh, there's so many to choose but that from. Was just begging to be ranked. <laughs> it really was. It was the most disastrous 25 minutes. I did 25 minutes of brand new material, which is insanely stupid. Yeah. There weren't any bureaus there, were there? Oh no, no. There were 80 potential clients yeah. in a production company that I love and that counted on me and believed in me and knew that it was going to be great. And I disappointed. Did you see the the look of disappointment on their on their little faces? That's something I'll treasure yeah. forever. Yeah. And I did a two camera shoot because I wanted one camera on nothing but audience reaction shots. Yeah so I could see people glare at me for 25 minutes in, per, in perpetuity. Yeah, I've I, always can, had this, that to go back to. I'd like to look, look at just the audience take oh, It's something to see. <laughs> it really is. But wait a minute. But, but then you say, because then I saw you do the same stuff, So and it worked beautifully. So what happened? Uh, I made some changes. Yeah. Uh, but it, as, as, as tough as it was to go into the first one with 25 minutes new material thinking it was going to be good, and then it was horrible. The second was was tougher because this production company actually believed that I would get this fixed and trusted me to do this program. So I I had not only the pressure of wanting to make this stuff right, but feeling like if I don't make this right, I'm really going to disappoint a lot of people that believe in me. Uh, the difference was I, I took a really hard, hard look at what I'd done. Yeah. And by going through that tape over and over again, looking at the looking at my performance, looking at audience reaction to my performance, and just I made three or four critical errors in uh, the way I set up the show, the attitude that I had in the show, the whole thing. It was just it was just it was not you know, I just made mistakes. And it's and that's it. You do not know. I mean, I've done this for ten years of stand up and ten years of this, and I've got a lot of stage time. And I have a lot of experience in writing comedy, and I think I know what I'm doing. But until you get in, a, in front of an audience, you never know. Yeah, that's the bottom line. The, well, that brings this to mind. Do you ever get an you know full fee offer? You've got the job, and you say no, I, I'm I'm not right, or or do you give it a shot? 
my issue with that is because I am 90% Bureau, by the time I find out what that that uh, that kicker is, it's almost too late. Yeah, uh, I will. That that's going to happen either on site or in the the client conversation after all the contracts have been signed. When they say, "Oh, by the way," yeah, and then you find out you're in a tent on a boat in a waterfall or whatever it is. Uh, the only thing I that I I know absolutely positively for sure that I'm gonna that I will say, you know what, I'd love to, but I just it's not for me. Is the international component of the audience. I am an American speaker, yeah. and it doesn't matter if they are English speaking, but American not American. Humor. It's American, yeah. and I've had I've discovered that in a you know a couple yeah. really flaming disasters yeah. that people you know they just they're polite and they're you know and they they nod. They don't laugh. Yeah. And it becomes very, very hot in the room all of a sudden. <laughs> and the time slows down. It's like a Salvador Dali doing comedy. It's just a horrible experience. You mentioned bureaus, and that made me think about the business end of the business. What's your business model? Is it all... You've got some product, don't you? How, a little how, do, you, how do you create income from your business? Oh, man, I wish I could answer that. I mean, if I'm here to talk about business models, this is going to be the worst VOE ever. I'm not a business guy. Here's, I was thinking about this. I, I don't look at, you know, well, is this idea going to extend my brand? Is is this going to be to create an income stream that's going to allow me to do the things I want to do? I'm, I I always sit back and go, I wonder if that'd be fun. You know, and if it's if it sounds like it'd be fun, then, yeah, I'll, I'll try that. And if it doesn't sound like it's going to be fun, even though it might be lucrative, I mean, life's too short to to spend on th- projects. I mean, we all ha- we all have a million projects lined yeah. up that we could do, and if it's not going to be fun, I mean, come on. What do you, what's something you feel like you need to get better at? Uh, for the for and this is this is becoming something that's becoming more apparent to me is I have not taken enough chances for a while. And whether whether or not my show is, I mean, people see my show for the first time and it's brand new for them, but it's not brand new for me. And because I had some outside creative interests for a while, I I allowed my show to get stale for me. And writing this new show has forced me to come up with new material, and it really it made me realize how much fun it is to go on stage with new material. It makes it interesting for me, even if it's even if the new material is just five percent of my performance that night. I'm looking forward to that five percent, and it energizes the rest of the show. Well, I was going to ask you about that because you've still got your old show. I still got the old show. How do you how do you keep that fresh? Because I mean, I've got stuff that I do. The clients want me to do it. I'm kind of tired of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So how do you meet that challenge of doing this material that the clients want, but it's old for you? I, it's the mix. I think it's just, I, I'm, I'm going to do the Chicken and Eagle story, my version of that parody story. I'm going to do that, but I'm also going to do, I've got to do some new stuff. And, and it, was, it was a challenge for me for a long time. I got, in this, I got wrapped up in this little cocoon of my show that always worked, and and uh, and then you start making significant money, at least for me, and you feel like you can't fail. Like every single second up there, you've got to be hitting balls over the fence. And I've come to the conclusion that short term, that yeah, that makes sense, but long term, it doesn't. You've got to be willing to step out with new material, and if they like it, 
you know, great. If they don't like it, you know, let's fix it and, and move on and back, you know, place it, sequence it so that it isn't going to kill your show, but it makes it interesting for you. Yeah, so who were some of the great motivational speakers that were kind of acted as your role models for this? When I started doing this, started doing the research for the show, I went to a public seminar and it was one of the big, you know, Zig Ziglar, all that stuff. And there was a guy on the show at the end, and I have no idea who his name was, but it was all he did was sell stuff i'm not sure he told me anything he just sold me stuff he would start a point and halfway through the point he said by the way at the back of the room i've got the entire 12 volume six book three cd set and this and i was so annoyed by that that i thought well that's something i'm gonna do because <laughs> i thought i'm gonna spend a significant portion of the new show selling the most worthless crap you can imagine what, what are a couple of joe malarkey's products i've got a memory program that you open it up and it's just a pad of paper that's sad. Uh, I've got a customer service seminar that I that I sell called "Does It Look Like I Work Here?" It's a um, I've got uh, subliminal tapes. Uh, although I so I said subliminal tapes for so long. Now they're subliminal CDs, of course. Uh, choose to lose subliminal CDs. That start out with uh, the first uh, CD is "Get Up, Get Up." Uh, your alarm didn't go off, and. Um, God, you know, I've got all that crap. You know, I've just got all. The, I've got the books. I've got the, a book. Uh, you've got a how to dress book, I think. Oh yeah, yeah. I've got uh, the. It's a two part set. The dress for success uh, for men and women. The men's is uh, called. Ooh, you're not wearing that, are you? And for the women, we have just this make my butt look fat. Very proud of those. <laughs> So do you actually sell these products in the back of the room? No, but I always have people coming up to me going, Hi, I don't get your set. And what I always tell them is, Let's, here's, what, here's the way I handle that. I take your money now, and if I get around to it, I'll send you something. So why don't you sell that stuff? I told you I'm a terrible businessman. <laughs> Just because people ask for it and have the money to pay for it does not mean I have, I'm required to sell it. This month on Ones to Watch, Jane Atkinson joins us again, and she is watching a young lady by the name of Ione McNeil. She's only 20 years old. What a gem of a find. Where did you find her? In the, In the hallway. hallway. <laughs> In the hallways of NSA, there are many things uh, to be found, and this girl is absolutely a diamond. She started learning how to invest money when she was seven years old and then turned around and started teaching other kids how to invest. And I just don't think it's going to be very long before we hear her name associated with the White House. One of the things that amazes me about her, you know, in, in, in your book and in, in other months when we've done this, you know, you've asked people, you know, about picking their lane, about what their flashpoints are, about having that label. She, at 20, already refers to herself as the baby billionaire. Uh, she has definitely picked a lane, which is finance, and she's flashpointing since the age of seven. It's crazy. She's definitely one to watch. I am the baby billionaire educating other youth on becoming baby billionaires. And I do that through an investment education along with money management tips. So you have a very interesting uh, beginning to how you fell into this career at a very, very young age of seven. Mm -hmm. how, how did that all begin? Well, at, at the age of seven, that's when my mom, along with you know some other people, 
you know, wanted to make a lot of money, didn't know how to invest on their own. So what do they do? They go out and find somebody that says, you know, I can make a lot of money for you. Ends up giving this guy a lot of money. He doesn't return it. Neither does he return. And that's when my mom made the decision in her mind that she had to educate herself on her own personal finances. This happened when I was seven. And once she started to attend investment classes, investment conferences and seminars, she would always take me with her. So in always taking me with her, you know, I absorbed everything that came my way, everything that I heard and listened to. And not only did I learn in the class, but I had to be the teacher at home because my mom made me redo the work. Not only reteach her, but, you know, do her homework for her in terms of studying stocks and then say, oh, well, help this lady learn how to do it, too. So in learning about it, I quickly became a teacher by having to help others. OK, so let's just get this straight. <laughs> You're seven, eight years old mm -hmm. and you've learned all this information about how do you run your own investments and now you start to teach other people how to do it. So tell us about how it, that you extended that out to the kids around you. Mm. Well, I have to say, when I started learning it, the one thing that caught me and my attention that I remember oh so vividly was this whole concept of ownership. There was a guy doing this presentation to kids on investing, and he said, that I could walk into McDonald's and basically if I owned shares of stock in McDonald's, I would be buying stuff that I had ownership on. I mean, I could walk up to the register and in essence, the cashier people or the people that handled the fries were in essence working for me. So with that, I mean, I was hooked. I mean, I, I was the owner of something before I even had a real job. So from that, I came home told my mom because I was also a basketball player at at that age and you know said to my mom you know mom I think owning Nike stock is better than owning Nike shoes and from that my mom was like oh my gosh that was the epitome for her and I just said it as if you know oh you didn't know this <laughs> so from that her friends would, you know, she had an investment club called Staff, Sisters Together Achieving Financial Freedom. And I would help teach them how to analyze the stocks that they were using in their portfolio. Then that turned through word of mouth to other youth organizations who wanted to bring in somebody to teach their kids about money management and investing. So from that, it's still growing now. Phenomenal. And here you are at 20 years old. This yes. is your third NSA conference. <laughs> yes. You are uh, an old timer practically now. <laughs> you know, it's great that you're so focused. You know exactly where you're going. You run your own public seminars. Yes. What does that involve? Well, this past year, we hosted the second annual National Youth Investing Conference. And when I say me, I mean the baby billionaire along with oh just some wonderful corporate sponsors such as the Home Depot, Wachovia Wells Fargo and and other names such as that as as well as other small corp companies. 
we put on this conference a full day workshop going from eight to five teaching kids and their parents about investing. In the beginning, a lot of the people walked in not even knowing what investing was and on top of that was scared of investing because I mean everything they listened to why shouldn't they be by the end they did a presentation with the five stocks that they wanted to put in their stock portfolio and then at the end of that they met with over 25 different corporations who had their investor relations departments present to be able to directly buy stock from that company. Wow. So let's talk about behind the scenes a little bit. Putting bums in seats at a public seminar is a big deal. Man. And you had 80 people the first year, 100 people the second year, so it's growing. It is growing. But it definitely was a lot of work and it was not something I did all by myself and especially being a junior accounting major. I mean accounting, that's like long, hard, and boring. I mean, major at Howard. With the work of my staff, uh, volunteers, it, it, it was made possible. But I mean, we were planning this thing from the latest January all the way up to June. Um, weekly Friday morning phone calls, conference calls, updates, dealing with outreach from schools to churches, colleges, and universities, dealing with corporate sponsorships, trying to fund um, just the whole nine yards. It was definitely an experience. Well, I can imagine that the media would be very, very interested in all of the things that you're doing, and they have. You've been inter... No, you put on sessions for some magazines before. Let's talk about yes. the media interest in you. Well, one of one of the latest and greatest events that I was invited to do and had the old supreme pleasure of doing was being an, invited to speak at the Essence Young Women's Leadership Conference, which, which happened in November in Washington, D.C., and of course, I was one of the youngest panelists there and actually on like the primetime stage with other, you know, just financial gurus about mortgages and how to get out of debt. And it was an, an amazing event. We had they planned for, I think, a thousand women, young women from, I think, 1825. In actuality, they had close to 2000 wow. show up. So the that event was was powerful. I've also been interviewed in the Chicago Tribune, Better Investing Magazine, Young Money Matters Magazine, Black Enterprise Magazine. The list a little bit goes off from wow. there, but um, it is wonderful. It's wonderful to be able to get this message out to so many people. What's coming down the pike for you now? Well, as of... The end of that second conference, we are definitely planning the third conference, which is going to be held in St. Louis around the same time, the end of June. Also, I have a book that I'm currently in the process of writing. The title as of right now is You're Paying for What You Don't Know. And it's basically a, a how-to and educational guide to young teens, teenagers, and young adults, especially in the college age, on how do I make my money work for me? Girl, you rock. <laughs>
Last month on Voices of Experience, we met Rene Godefroy. He was in Jane Atkins' uh, segment about ones to watch. And as we talked with Rene, we also found out that Rene does a lot of good work offstage. So, so many people as speakers, we, we focus all of our attention on stage. But what's your life like offstage? Rene, tell me a little bit about what you did going back to your native Haiti. Well, we have an orphanage in the village uh, where I'm from and a health clinic. It's the first one. And because when I was growing up, when I was a kid in the village, we didn't have access to medical care or anything. And I thought to myself, well, at some point, somebody has to do something about it. But more importantly, uh, last December, I went to my village to have Christmas dinner with 28 kids. I got to tell you, they told me it was the best Christmas ever they had. I mean, we had food, drinks, and desserts, and all kinds of things, and I handed uh, money. I just gave them money just like that. They were in line, and they came. They, they hugged me. They said to me it was the best Christmas ever they've had, and then they, they called me Pappy, and they just wanted to go with me. And uh, I was thinking to myself, wow, uh, you know, I was in Haiti a couple of years ago. I was on national television, and I gave this interview. This young woman came to me, and she said, I wish you, were, you, I wish you came. I wish you, you were here like two months ago because my best friend killed herself. And uh, if she had heard you, she would not do it because today I'm going through the same issues and challenges she's going through. So, through. so she, her friend had committed suicide, and now she's thinking of doing the same thing. The same thing. And then she heard me on uh, national television, and then she came to me. She said, you saved my life, and you would have done the same thing for my friend. Then I get to thinking to myself, this concept of making a difference on stage and off stage when you approached me. And I was like, that's what it's all about. Then you know, I was thinking, should I stay in America and enjoy the good life, standing ovation and accolades, and or should I also balance it out and go to my country, to my village, and, and make a difference uh, offstage as well? When you look at other speakers who make a difference offstage, who comes to mind for you? Uh, one of the first uh, people that came to mind uh, is Bob Denzig. Because I heard his story. He talked about being a foster child, and he talked about starting uh, in the newspaper as a newspaper boy, and he became the CEO of the company. And, and amazing. Now he's speaking, not because he wants to make the money. He wants to raise enough money to help foster children. I thought to myself, wow, what an incredible man. So... Uh, and I said, he is the first person that I want to interview for this segment. Okay, so this segment is going to be called Offstage. Let's meet Bob. Sure. Well, I grew up in the foster care system, and I ended up getting a job at a local newspaper as the office boy. But it happens that my first bo boss had been a foster parent. She took an interest in me and encouraged me one day by telling me that she thought I was full of promise. I never forgot her words. So all of my speaking fees are donated to foster care kids in college and also to young musicians that my bride finds. And I seek out ways to celebrate and encourage uh, the foster care system, both the workers in it and the kids in it. 
And um, I also teach at the Newton School University in New York City. I do that pro bono, teach the confidence course there. And we have a home in Florida, Renee. Mm-hmm. So when I go to Florida in the winter, I contact all the local universities and colleges and all the social service agencies. And I say, I'm going to be there for these these dates. How can I come serve you? How can I share with you? And I've ended up lecturing at all the different MBA programs and business schools, journalism schools, and almost every day I go and have a breakfast or a brown bag luncheon meeting with the staff of one of those social service agencies. I go there to celebrate them. Mm-hmm. And I frankly use the gifts I've had from NSA. I hope to celebrate them well. Tell us about the book, um, Champion for Foster Children. Well, um, my newest book right now is Conversations with Bobby from Foster Child, a corporate executive. Mm-hmm. Before that, I wrote Every Child Deserves a Champion. Yes. I wrote Angel Threads. I wrote Vitamins of the Spirit. I wrote The Leader Within You. And um, a book called There Is Only One You. Can you, can you uh, guess how many foster children so far you've touched directly or indirectly? Well, <laughs> it's a large number because they find me. And uh, we don't give scholarships, Renee. We simply send money to foster mm-hmm. care kids who have completed one year of college because mm-hmm. that first year is very difficult. Mm-hmm. After that, we just send them celebration money. And we tell them we're sending them money because we believe that they deserve a higher purpose mm-hmm. and they should be applauded. Mm-hmm. But it's now, a large number yeah, is answer true. your question. Wow, I can imagine. <clears throat> uh, now, speakers, um, beginning speakers are experienced speakers who are not now making a difference off stage. What advice would you would you have for them? Well, I think every speaker that I've met so far in NSA has some noble purpose, some point that they want to make, whether they're trainers, consultants, or speakers. And it seems to me that when they lock into that noble purpose, they're inviting themselves to expand that noble purpose to a sharing with others off stage. They simply need to find the rainbow of applications for the noble purpose they've already defined. When you find a way to share your abundance off stage, it is very specific. I just had a letter from a young woman named Merle Desrosier, who we have sponsored all the way through college. She just came back from France on a special fellowship, which we funded this morning. She sent us notes saying, I'm not here to thank you. I'm here to be blessed by the fact that I now know how to share my abundance because you were in my pathway. A speaker that chooses to share the noble purpose off stage will find great, great specificity to it. They'll find their Merleys. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for being such a great example of making a difference off stage. My great pleasure, Renee. It's time to get your to-do list ready. Our panel of experts has a new list of little steps that you can take to advance product development, social media writing, and business strategies as we break those big tasks into little actionable items in If You Could Do Just One Thing This Month. Hi, this is Bill Cates. If there's one thing you could do this month to create multiple streams of income, it would be to turn your expertise into a specific system designed to produce tangible results, a system that any of your clients could follow from point A to point B and emerge with a specific tangible result. 
Whether your expertise is in sales, service, leadership, motivation, teamwork, or any topic, you can have a specific system or process that people follow. And yes, even motivational and inspirational speakers should and can have a system. As you know, ideas do not make us more successful. Implementing ideas makes us more successful. Just giving people ideas from the platform, while certainly a worthwhile endeavor, does not have the same impact as a system someone would follow that helps them implement your ideas. You can start with a simple action guide that follows along with your book or audio CD or audio album. The action guide helps them with the implementation. Through thought-provoking questions and exercises, they're guided through your system and they produce results. While there are many ways to deliver this system of knowledge, the first step is to develop the step-by-step process. Once accomplished, you can deliver it through a series of audio CDs or email autoresponders that they receive when they purchase a product, or a continuity program where they subscribe to a year's worth of webinars or teleseminars or coaching calls. Now in our next issue of Voices of Experience, I'm going to talk about the incredible value of putting this system, putting this process onto video and producing a video-based training program. This has been Bill Cates. Thanks for listening. Now go do something that produces a result. I'm Chris Clark Epstein, and it's time to talk about writing. It's important to remember that as speakers, most of the people who purchase our books, download our articles, and subscribe to our newsletters do so because they want to extend the experience that they had being with us in person. When your writing style mirrors your speaking style, it is said that you found your voice. Kurt Vonnegut said it this way, you develop a style from writing a lot. Finding your voice, that is the style, the manner, and the written sound you want to convey is the next great step in our writing segments. Try this exercise from Fred White's wonderful book, The Daily Writer. It's subtitled 366 Meditations to Cultivate a Productive and Meaningful Writing Life. It'd be a great start to your writing library. Here's the exercise. Read at least one section of a morning newspaper. Open your notebook to a new page, write for 10 minutes, filling a page by describing in a relaxed, informal manner, without groping for impressive words, how you feel about one of the stories that you just read. After you finish the page, read it aloud. I really mean it. Read it out loud. If it doesn't sound like you, circle the phrases or sentences that seem artificial or forced. Then revise what you've written until it seems to capture your natural voice. This writing exercise is a great one because you can do it quickly with virtually no tools except pen and paper. You can do it on a plane, on a boat, or while sitting in your backyard. Since you're picking the stories from the newspaper, you can choose a topic to meet your needs. Now apply the voice test to your current work in progress. Turn to any page that you've written, read it aloud, and if it sounds at all artificial, get busy revising it. Go through these steps multiple times over the next few weeks and watch your writing style flourish. Remembering, of course, only writing will make you a better writer. It's been terrific spending this time with you. I'd love to hear how your writing skills and attitudes are being shaped by these segments. Drop me an email at chris at change101.com. I'll write you back. Hi, Ford Sakes here, and I've been asked to share quick strategy segments for VOE on how you can monetize your social networking efforts to grow your business. Last issue, I expressed how important it was to claim your user accounts at Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and have a blog, preferably a blog as part of your regular website. 
Now in this issue, we're going to take a look at the importance of selecting targeted keywords to use in your social media account profiles. Now this starts with an understanding that keywords drive traffic. But with social media marketing, it's not the typical drive traffic to get people to buy your product or service or even get a booking. It's really about relationships, adding value, joining the conversation, and getting and giving feedback. With social media, the words you use in your profiles, account names, tags, blogs, and titles all help you to expand your digital footprint and get your content found. Now, okay, the first thing about keywords that you should be focusing on are that keyword phrases should be at least two to five words. You know, just like yourself, when you use a search engine, you probably search for at least three words. So when you're on your user account setting screens in Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and the other sites, make sure you take the time to completely fill out your profile and use targeted keywords so that your account will get properly cataloged and make it easier for people to connect with you. Now when you post a video to YouTube, make sure you work your keywords in your titles and descriptions. On Twitter, make sure you go to the settings screen and fill out your name, URL, and bio and put your keywords in there too, especially if you have a more common name. That way, when other people are trying to find you, they can identify which Twitter account they really want to follow. Same goes with your tweets. Use your keywords. Same goes with your Facebook and LinkedIn profiles. Update them to make sure that you have targeted keywords and keyword phrases that you want to use that you think other people would search for. So here's what you need to do. Jot down your top 25 to 50 keyword phrases and keep that list handy during your social media networking. And most importantly, always write for the site visitor first and then for the search engines. If you have great content, you share it, and you engage in the conversations, you'll be well on your way to monetizing your social media marketing efforts. Okay, this has been Forward Sakes from PrimeConcepts.com reminding you to take action every day on your outbound marketing efforts. Hello friends, it's Mike Rayburn again. You know, I have found that we all approach our lives and thus our careers based on certain guiding principles, values, or philosophies. They're philosophies we've either adopted by default based on our upbringing or ones we've chosen consciously by our own design. So, of course, the fundamental philosophy you choose to guide your actions will always be life-altering. That said, let me share with you the philosophy or guiding principle I have found to be perhaps most beneficial to any career success I've had. Be willing to do what others will not. Be willing to do what others will not. Yes, that certainly includes doing the things that your client sees you do that are beyond what other speakers might do, doing the things that bureaus see you do, what other speakers see you do. And that's all very good and very important. But more than that, I'm talking about what you personally are willing to do, the stuff you'll do that no one else may ever see, except indirectly from your results. The work, the time, the research, the effort you're willing to give, even when no one but you will know you did it. Friends, this is where you set yourself apart. People will say, wow, what is it about him or her that that just seems to stand out? How does he or she just seem to get it and to be so good? And they might not have an answer, but you will. And you know what? In a world so starved of excellence, this is not always hard to do. Excellence and being the best is really not about having some savant-like talent in your field. It's about going the extra mile. Be willing to do what others will not and doing it regardless of who's going to see you or not. Hey, thank you very much, and I will see you next month. Okay, it's confession time. 
Since 1999, I've been going to all of these summer conventions and I've never made one of the smaller conferences until this past year. And it was absolutely amazing. And Ellie Vallis is joining us. She's fall conference chair. And one of the things I found amazing was the fact that when I went to Orlando in 2009, uh, earlier this year, there there was a limitation on who could get in. I felt lucky to get in. What's the thought process behind limiting how many of our members can go to an event like this November event in Phoenix? We're trying to provide a more intimate learning environment than perhaps you would get at a convention where there's 1,500 or 2,000 people so that we can really not only do deep dive learning, but give the opportunity to network with people who have been successful and people that are doing the things that we aspire to do and that we really get the opportunity to create not just a community of friends, but a community of people that we can use as our board of directors or our, um, our, our learning accountability partners so that um, we really get a group of people that we can go back to over and over again for information and uh, how to and learn how to use some of the things that we've done. One of the things I found neat about going to three meetings a year, you know, the summer event, the the winter event, the fall event, is the idea that you don't lose momentum. I find that my business is gaining more traction because I'm doing more, not just learning more. I, I feel more accountable, like you said, with accountability buddies. I think that's important. And I think that when we limit our learning to an annual event, then we limit the amount of information that we actually get to use to saying, I only have to do one or two things because I don't have to do it again for a year. And I think when you get to do it every four months, then you have the opportunity to improve the number of things that you actually act on every year. Yeah, I'm also finding that when people go to that first one, you almost become part of a a little secret society, almost a cult, because you can't get enough. I'm addicted to going three times a year now. Well, we need people like you. (laughs) I'm not sure you need that. Uh, But when it comes time to signing up, uh, if you've never been to one of these things or if it's time to go again, tell us how we sign up. Well, we've got some registered already, so hurry up and do it at nsaspeaker.org. Very good. The next event is November 20th through 22nd in Phoenix, Arizona. I'll be there. I hope to see you there as well. In addition to attending official NSA events, you may also want to attend some of the international events. You've probably heard of the International Federation for Professional Speakers, but now it's being called the Global Speaker Federation. And their new president is Lindsay Adams, and Lindsay's joining us now. Lindsay, tell me a little bit about the name change. Well, the name change uh, is a branding issue. We, uh, For a start, the International Federation for Professional Speakers is such a mouthful and we shorten it to the IFFPS and we get substitutions, IPFF, uh, whatever. <laughs> well, to be honest, I messed it up three times here and we already yeah. erased those three. Yeah. So Global Speaker Speakers Federation, it's shorter, it's punchier, and it fits with the rest of our branding. We now have the Global Speakers Federation as the overarching body over our 10 member countries around the world. We have a Global Speakers Summit. Uh, usually every couple of years around the world where we encourage international speakers to gather in one place in the world somewhere. And we also have a global speakers network. 
which again is a group specifically designed for our international speakers to get together and network. So it kind of fits the branding. It makes a whole lot of sense. When we were in Phoenix at the international or at the NSA conference in July, you issued a challenge uh, to the audience, the, the 1,500 people who were there, and, and encouraged them and challenged them to don't just go to NSA, but to go to one or more international events. My challenge was to go to just one other international event in the world somewhere. We Again, we have 10 member countries and we run nine international conventions for speakers around the world. And my challenge was to go to just one other event. And, and here's my thinking. We go, to, uh, we go to another country, we immediately broaden our horizons. We, we build uh, international friendships and relationships. We meet potential collaborators who can bring business to us and we can take business to them. Uh, and it is a deductible business expense, which is, uh, I don't know about you, but I love travel and I love going to uh, international destinations when it is a deductible business expense. Uh, and it's a great tool for business generation. You know, I've been, uh, I've been traveling internationally now for, I think, the last five years, and I have built a network of buddies around the world. I have uh, built a network of business contacts around the world. And I think people would, would have their eyes open severely wide when they realize what's possible out there. You know, let me go over a few of the upcoming uh, events. The UK has theirs coming up in November. Uh, in Canada, CAPS has theirs in December. March, uh, Holland has theirs. And in the April time frame, Australia, Singapore, and South Africa. And I've met a number of people here who seem to really enjoy hitting four, five, six of these, however many they can in a single trip around the world. What's been your experience with well, that? Well, that's the beauty of it. Uh, uh, you know, I live in Australia. I live in Brisbane in Queensland, Australia. Beautiful place. Uh, when I, in, in that time of year, it's great because I, um, I can do a round-the-world trip. I can do Singapore. I can do South, South Africa, um, go through Europe, go through the U.S. Uh, it kind of depends. But it's a great way to, again, broaden your horizons, see some buddies, uh, make new friends and learn and grow your business. Okay, speaking stars, it's time to return to our live performance from A Night of a Thousand Starfish, recorded live at the NSA convention this past summer. During the show, a dozen humorists took a shot at telling their own twisted version of the infamous starfish story. Now, if you don't know the original story, take a listen to last month's VOE. And for those of you who have done your homework and are staying current with your VOE listening, let's join Ron Culberson and David Clickman as they evaluate the performance we're about to hear from Michael Ronan. One of the things that I remember from Saturday Night Live and other experiences in theater, whenever we see the wall break down, where we're supposed to be almost voyeuristically watching a scene of people interacting, and then all of a sudden we're part of it because somebody gets tickled or they bring us in as part of the script. We love that. It's the man behind the curtain, and we love to know what happens behind the scenes. And Michael really pointed that out. He's shown the light on speakers and the speaking business. And instead of doing the starfish just straight, he made it look like what, how we would handle the situation and made fun of all those little, little idiosyncrasies in the speaking world. And I just, I think 
I think that's brilliant. It just it was turning the mirror on us. I've I've always had a little mantra: uh, the more specific the humor, the more terrific the humor. And this was the case in Michael's performance by, as Ron said, making it about us. It ramps up the level of the humor. We find it funnier than just something that might have been generic, perhaps. And he he hits us where we live. And and something about Michael, he has cerebral palsy, and he doesn't let that become a hindrance. In fact, he uses it in, in such a brilliant way in his delivery. Well, again, once once again, he calls what people are thinking or want to know. Uh, he, because of his uh, the effect on his motor skills, it takes him a little longer to get to the microphone. So one of his opening lines is, is by the time I get here, I'm done. And so he's allowing the audience to deal with what they see and know or think. So he's going behind the curtain again and calling it. And we love that. So we laugh and it makes us feel more comfortable with him then. And perhaps to Michael's benefit, because his delivery needs to be a little bit slower, we are more attentive as an audience. We are listening at a much higher level than we might uh, necessarily. So it makes whatever crafty language he's going to put in there, what humor is going to be in there, is going to be, I, I think, received at a much more, uh, uh, at a higher, higher level. Ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome to the stage Michael Ronan. Here it goes. My starfish story. A boy was walking on the beach when he noticed a man talking to himself. The boy walked up and asked, Sir, what are you doing? To which the man replied, I am practicing my elevator speech. The boy said, sir, what's an elevator speech? <laughs> the man said, an elevator speech is my pitch line when someone wants to hire me as a speaker. The boy says, do you get paid to speak? The man says, yes. Ask any of my colleagues at NSA and they will tell you how much I tell them that I make. <laughs> the little boy said, okay, hit me with your speech, elevator speech. The man said, okay, here goes. I help corporate executives move forward to live and work productively. <laughs> the little boy said, sir, why don't you be more real? Just say something like this. I speak and you pay me so I don't have to get a real job. <laughs> The man said, oh, that's great, I should do that. The boy then charged the man a $2,000 consulting fee. 
go by and that little boy opened the speaker's bureau. <laughs> he then shared the story with every new potential speaker. And then he charges them $500 to watch their demo video. <laughs> So the boy might have not saved every speaker, but he saved that one. <laughs> Thank you. Stay open to changing your life By changing your mind One day at a time Open your mind One day at a time Down in New Orleans, where I live, when you give someone a little something extra, it's called lanyap. So this month, I'd like to give you a little something extra, a little lanyap. Let's spend a few minutes with the woman who wrote our theme music for Voices of Experience, Janice Stanfield. The idea came from a coffee cup. It said, all that I ask is that you stay open to changing your life by changing your mind. And as a poet songwriter, of course, I have to go one day at a time, add that in there. <laughs> and um, It must rhyme. <laughs> yeah. One, one thing I do is take affirmations, and I just sing them to myself during the day as a vocal exercise. I sing them different ways, and it just kept coming. All that I ask is that you stay open to changing your life by changing your mind one day at a time. Then my producer, Matt Wilder, who's also one of my favorite co-writers, created a track underneath it and started putting loops drum loops underneath percussion loops and so we just sat in the studio with the mic on and just started singing things like you can change your life you can change your mind you can change your life one day at a time and we just sang and sang and sang and then we went and took back the little pieces that we liked and edited them all together and started putting other instrumental pieces in there to make a song and I had never done anything like that before and it was so fun. I, I guess you were open to changing your mind. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's important to evolve. It's very easy for us to define ourselves as we have been defined or as we have defined ourselves in the past. I love the idea of imagining what it can be, what it could be by staying with that question. All that I ask is that you stay open to changing your life by changing your mind. How could you change your mind to accept more abundance, to accept that there's more of you than, for example, me, just verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus songs, that I could write things that are walking affirmations that get stuck in people's minds. There's so many more things for us to do if we can just imagine the possibilities and take the baby steps forward. It's October and time to visit with NSA President Phil Van Hooser. And I thought it would be fun to get to know you a little better, Phil, and to let our members get to know you a little better. So my first question for you this month is what did you imagine your business would be as a speaker when you first got started? Well, Jared, 
my limited experience led me to believe that while I was still dreaming about being a speaker, the only way I could imagine myself was as a storytelling humorist, possibly on the banquet circuit, whatever that is or was. A sort of latter-day version of the late Jerry Clower. You remember, Jerry? And I can see how, how you would dream that. Really? Yeah. Well, my formal education and professional experience, at least to that point, were all rooted in the corporate business world. I was working daily with supervisors and leaders who desperately needed, and wanted for that matter, help in becoming better leaders. I wanted the same for myself. Well, that's when I learned one of my very first and most important leadership and ultimately speaking business lessons, which is bloom where you're planted. In other words, for me at least, this means maximize the opportunities in front of you right now. Be the best you can be today, and additional opportunities are certain to follow. Opportunities of such a scope and magnitude that you most likely would not have been able to imagine them otherwise. Okay, so this is what you imagined. What surprises did you have along the way? Well, there were a number of surprises that I had to deal with. Um, I remember one being that I was surprised at how welcoming prospective clients were to what I had to offer, even with my limited speaking or training experiences. If I would just listen to them and then consciously work to give them what they wanted. I learned early on of the importance and value of customizing my message to the specific needs of the client. Another thing I was surprised by was I was initially surprised at how much I enjoyed being in front of a group of 15 to 20 for two or three hours instead of 45 minutes on the main stage. I'd been imagining myself for all those years as sort of that keynoter, after-dinner speaker, and yet this was not bad. One more thing I, I remember being surprised by, I, I was also surprised by just how much hard work it was to be successful in this business. To build a sustainable business, it requires content development, marketing and sales, program customization, and of course, masterful delivery. We all know that. And then a willingness to do it all over again for the very next client. Right. It was, and for me still is, hard work, but it was also far more invigorating than I could have imagined. So tell me, how did you have to adjust your expectations as you went along? I believe in the concept of rigid flexibility. What is that? Well, now that's a term I borrowed from a dear friend of mine and a former NSA colleague, Bob Mann. For me, being rigidly flexible means that I've got to rigidly or unfailingly remain flexible that is open and available to changes that I will inevitably experience and to the lessons and opportunities those changes inevitably will yield. Or said a different way, I went with the ebb and flow of my evolving business, trying to make adjustments and alterations to my plan as the bigger picture of this business became clearer and clearer to me. But now, wait, make no mistake, mm -hmm. I credit the wonderful members of, of NSA with teaching me ways to adjust, evolve, and, and even succeed over time. I didn't do it by myself. Now, let me follow up with this. What do you imagine it will be in the future? Jared, I've been in this business for almost 22 years. I began as a young man, and now I'm in the middle of my middle-aged years. 
But even with that, I can still imagine myself in this business in some capacity 20 years from now. Now, what I can't imagine is all that I will still learn in the meantime. As we're sitting here talking, even now I'm learning. My current plan is just to keep talking and learning and, of course, imagining, and let's just see where it all leads. It's been said that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear, which means that as we each listen to voices of experience, we all take away certain unique ideas and insights based on our own personal needs at the time we listen. I'd love to hear about some of your takeaways from this month's Voices of Experience. My own four personal favorites were Mike Rayburn's advice to do what the competition is not willing to do, Phil Van Hooser's advice to bloom where you're planted, George Campbell's humor advice that the audience must always buy the premise to buy the bit, and David Noir's advice that social media should be a place to listen to your customers. If you'd like to share your own personal takeaways about this month's Voices of Experience, We've set up a VOE fan page on Facebook where we'll be listening. My hope for you is that our guests have ignited a small spark that turns into a big idea for your speaking business. The possibilities are endless. The first thing you have to do is imagine. For Voices of Experience, I'm Jared Bro. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.